This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Hey, it's the Bartender Journey Podcast, number 179. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Well, this is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, as I record this, we're out to head out on another adventure going up to the Whistlepig Farm in Vermont. And uh, we're going to have sessions with uh, Dave Pickerel, who's the legendary distiller who uh, who works there. I used to work at uh, Maker's Mark. And uh, can't wait to see what happens. Well, we'll try to uh, record some on the fly, record some audio on the fly, and, uh, and you know, get you involved. let you know what happens. But first, I want to let you know, Bartender Journey this week is brought to you by Bartender, which helps you do inventory ordering and get real-time insights on what's moving in your bar in minutes versus hours. The team at Bartender wants to make inventory easier and help increase transparency and happiness for everyone. So bartenders, managers, and owners can come together to build a better beverage program. Bartender, check them out. It's bartender.com, P-A-R-T-E-N-D-E-R.com. Well, we're here with the legendary Dave Pickerel <laughs> at the beautiful Whistlepig Farm. What, sir, what is it that, about Whistlepig that made you want to uh, come on board with Whistlepig? Well, you know, uh, um, actually, Raj and I jointly founded this, um, so it was from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, really, my, my desire when I left Maker's Mark was to do two things. It was to be involved in the craft spirit movement and specifically to be involved in the resurgence of rye whiskey. Um, it's my belief that rye whiskey should be America's his- historic spirit. It predates bourbon by almost 200 years, and and just hadn't been. And it was literally it it was a dead spirit, and uh, and I, I wanted to help bring it back to life again. Why is it so important? Uh, well, there's this historical reason, but also just profile-wise, it's it's a, it's it's quite different than bourbon, and it and it's and it's important for well for bartenders and for for America to love rye again. Well, you know, the, the whole resurgence of rye was the bartender's fault. Um, <laughs> fault. Seriously, yeah. Or, or, you know, or, um, but, uh, but really, you know, if you in, in 2005, if you went around and said, Who, who's drinking rye? The answer, you either get one of two answers, either nobody or I think my grandfather. Um, you know, and, and that's it. You know, I had an uncle whose name was Rye, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming he drank rye. Um, but, uh, um, but nobody drank rye. 2006 comes along, the cocktail culture begins, and uh, the bartenders start pulling out the Savoy and the Jerry Thomas, and, and they get to read those, and they're going, oh, geez, look at that. The first old-fashioned was made with rye, and the first Manhattan was made with rye, and the first julep was made with rye, and they're going, God, if we're going to make cocktails and we want to be authentic, we need to buy rye whiskey. And they went out and bought rye whiskey, and it was it was the bartenders, not the consumers, that started the resurgence. And, and in 2006... After decades of decline, rye grew 20% in one year. And it was all on the back of the cocktail culture. And then 2007, it jumped again at 30%. And as soon as the data came in, I left Maker's Mark. <laughs> so I have to do this. You know, it was literally, it was already the love of my life since 2001 when, uh, when I had been graciously invited to help with the, uh, the reestablishment of George Washington's distillery. And, uh, um, and so I was just... I was so excited, I just couldn't contain myself. I'll tell you the story. I was at a, a, cocktail, a, a cocktail bar about, you know, let's say maybe eight years ago, and we were drinking rye old fashions, and they finally had to come out. There was about six of us or eight of us, and they finally had to come out and say, sorry, we're out of rye. <laughs> we don't have any more. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, we drank it all. <laughs> we, we drank the quarter bottle that you had in the back 
but that was a common problem right. six, yeah, just, six or eight years well, ago. And, and literally, if you go back and look, there were only like four brands of rye, and yeah. and all of them were being made by bourbon guys. It was all Maryland-style rye that was, you know, just barely over the limit to be rye, and uh, and there just weren't many. And uh, and the fun thing is, you know, for me, um, you know, there are two styles of rye, Maryland and Monongahela, or Pennsylvania rye, and Pennsylvania rye was rye with no corn in it. And literally, for for a bunch of reasons, um, Monongahela or Pennsylvania rye died in 1933 at the end of Prohibition. And uh, um, and while it was the more more flavorful of the of the brothers, um, for a lot of economic reasons and other reasons, it just completely died. But if you look at the resurgence, all of the growth in rye whiskey has been in Pennsylvania style rye um, because it is the more flavorful of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, let's just talk about that for a minute. A lot of people don't realize there's different styles of rye. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the two different styles, again, are Pennsylvania. So the, so the two styles of rye, you know, are, are Pennsylvania or Monongahela. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it more commonly it's Monongahela, but nobody can spell it. So yeah. it's Pennsylvania. It's hard instead. to say. It's hard enough to say <laughs> Pennsylvania. But, uh, um, but so Pennsylvania, well, let's call it Pennsylvania, Maryland style. And, you know, if you remember back in, you know, in the, in the revolutionary era, um, people distilled what they grew. Yeah. A, a distillery was a piece of farm equipment, and uh, you didn't transport grain. So uh, um, corn's not native north of the Mason-Dixon line. So so all of the whiskey that was made in Pennsylvania and New York um, was all um, was all rye whiskey that didn't have any corn in it. You move south of the Mason-Dixon line and into the Maryland area, um, there's a lot of corn that's grown, and so so the the recipe tended to be a mixture of corn and rye. Um, certainly, the, the from a taste profile, the the uh, the rye with no corn in it, the Pennsylvania style rye, is, is a lot spicier right. um, because the corn sweetens it up, and and uh, so makes it it's more like its cousin bourbon then. Mm-hmm. So so no corn at all, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% rye. Right? No, because it, because uh, you can have some malted barley in it. Right. And, and, you know, historically, if you look far enough back, people didn't understand the, what, uh, you know, necessarily understand what malted barley did early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, if you look at George Washington's recipe in his era, they would say, okay, during during these months you don't use any malt, any barley, and during these other months you do. Well, what they didn't realize is the corn was malting in the bins. And so mm-hmm. part of the year... They, they were using corn and rye with no malt because, you know, and I think they thought it was associated with the weather or something, but really they were, they were using malt. It was just the, the corn had malted in the grain bins, so they didn't need any other malt. And then would they blend that together in the end, or well, would that just, be two separate just, product, it just, products? It was just all cooked together, and, and, uh, and there was enough diastatic power in the corn that had malted that you didn't need any, any extra malted barley. And then in the winter, you know, well, you just had a fresh harvest, so it wasn't malted yet, so you needed to add some some malted barley to it to to make it go. Yeah, yeah. So just for anybody who doesn't know, the malted barley actually uh, introduces enzymes, right? The, the right. Well, any the... malt, any grain can malt. It's just that malted that barley has more power to to do this. But okay. the, but when you malt a grain, it releases enzymes that break starch into sugar. And it's a it's a pair of enzymes um, called alpha and beta or alpha and glucoamylase, and uh, um, the first one is like like it like I, I liken it to let's say you had a big ice storm. There's a lot of tree branches and they're in a big pile, 
If I said, hey, go over there and pull out a tree branch. Well, you know, when you go to pull it, the whole stack wants to come because mm. it's all cross-linked with all the, the, the twigs and sticks and, and limbs. So if I say, hey, let's, let's, let's all get in here with a bunch of shears and every time we find a, a cross branch, just cut it off, okay? So now you're left with a pile of twigs and sticks. If I say, pull one out now, it just slides right out, okay? okay. That's what the first enzyme does. Mm. That alpha amylase, it literally goes in and cuts all the cross-links off. And so it goes from being thick in the mash tub to being thin. The second one is like taking those and putting them in a wood chipper. Hmm. Literally, the second enzyme just starts at one end and just chomp, 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 and it, and it just takes the, the, the starch, long-chain starch molecules and just bites off one sugar at a time and releases it into the mix. So the second one is the one that, that actually gives you the sugar. Wow, interesting. So, so today we're going to actually uh, start making some whiskey with you, apparently. That's, that's like, kind of the idea. Let's get wow. dirty in the distillery. I, I'm so honored to do that. So, so tell us, uh, Whistle Pig started, and uh, as everyone knows, you, you've been um, purchasing the juice uh, mm -hmm. from other sources, but now we're actually laying down whiskey that we're going to help make today. Yeah, we're. A, <laughs> you know, it's a, it was a, it was a, a long and arduous. Uh, um, endeavor yeah with the the Vermont government uh, yeah. took uh, took four and a half years and a quarter million dollars in legal fees mm. to get the Vermont government to decide that what we were doing was agricultural <laughs> and uh, um, you know I'm thinking okay we, we grow grain we harvest grain yeah. we make whiskey from water that we pump out of our own well yeah. um, and then we feed livestock with the spent grain and it took them four and a half years to decide that was agricultural we're, we're sitting here amongst what 1,400 acres of yeah, about yeah 13, 14 something like rye that. that you're growing to make whiskey. Beautiful crops of rye. It's all it's all harvested now. The, the harvest for this year was unbelievably good. Mm. Um, best harvest we've ever had. Mm. And, uh, um, and it kind of goes so in much. that silo right there. Um, no, no. That, that's a uh, that's an that's uh, an old defunct silo that okay. was that was uh, used when this was a dairy farm. Oh, got uh, it. So it's all in uh, in tote sacks stored in the um, in the another farm building off-site here. Okay. And uh, so so then the next step, it's uh, brought into this building right here in mm -hmm. front of us, right? And then, and then what happens with it? Um, so, we, so we bring it in and uh, then we have to mill it first of all. So we've got a, we've got a roller mill and, uh, um, and uh, mill it down. And then once we've milled it, we, uh, um, we go through a mashing process, which is where you boil up the, the the water, get it nice and hot, and add the grain in, and you know we're all going to get our glasses steamy later on today. While we're, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, I, I say it's it's like uh, um, it's more like making a puff pastry than it is like making a soup. You know, you just when you're making a, a stew or something, you just dump everything in and let it go, right? When you're making a puff pastry, you got to watch it, you know. And you know, I, I tell people, you know, there's no recipe in the world that can tell you exactly how much egg to make to use or exactly how long to whisk it. You just got to develop a sense for it. You look at it and go, eh, that's not quite right. Or, uh, you know, and you know that if you, that if you stop short, it's going to be soft and it's going to collapse on itself when you cook it. And if you know if you go a little bit too long, it's going to bake hard. And when you try to cut it open, it's going to just fall apart in crumbs. And it's the same with cooking rye. You, you can't just dump the grain in and let it go. If you're doing corn, you can. You can just literally just, as fast as you can pour it in, you can do it and just, really? and just button it up and go. You don't have to look at it all. But when you're doing rye, you got to watch it because uh, because it's a brat, and it, it foams, it sticks, it gets so thick you can't stir it. 
and so you just have to watch what's going on and and uh, and you coach it to you, you partner with Rye. You don't you don't master Rye. You just partner with it. <laughs> so that's the process of you would so call that distillation. We call right? that we call that mashing. It's not no. beer yet. It's so it's so at this yet. stage it's mash. Okay. Um, then we pump it into a fermenter. All right. We haven't and, we haven't put the yeast in yet. Right. And we put the yeast in right at the end of mashing and pump it into a fermenter. And then it starts to ferment away. And in the fermenter, it's beer. Okay. And by the time it's done, after three or four days, it's about 8% alcohol. Okay. And then we pump it into the still. Mm -hmm. And we start distilling it. When it comes off the still, um, it's a, it's, it's a um, new make whiskey or white dog or whatever you want to call it. It right. is not moonshine. Um, I, I, I revel in that term. Yeah, uh, that's a weird revile, term. Not it revel, make... I revile in a term. Because yeah. moonshine is a... By nature, it's an illegal and unrefined spirit, and you'll see when you taste this that there's actually glory in this, even when it's a, even when it's. A, we we a, tasted it yesterday, right out of the still, distilled. with our with our fingers. And it really is. It's, it's it tasty. delicious. Um, and uh, um, so it's it's just a, you know, unaged or white dog, and and then it goes into the barrel and the magic happens. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and good old um, Ma Mortimer watches over it with with great care. <laughs> you know, we no longer, it's not the angel share anymore. For us, it's the pig share. Because <laughs> uh, we're convinced that Mortimer's watching over our... Mortimer, <laughs> well, I, I know what that is, but we haven't explained that yet. So Mortimer was our very first pet pig. He was yeah. a, a, a Cooney Cooney. And, and uh, Mortimer was a great explorer. And from the very beginning, we didn't un really understand how, how much Mortimer needed to see the world. And so we brought him and his girlfriend, Mauve, and they are just little piglets, and... We brought him in, and, and we thought we had a nice, secure, and comfy home site for him. And, but he just he just needed to see more, and, and somehow he managed to get out of his pen. And uh, he was gone for two days. Mm. We we thought he was probably coyote food, but we were we didn't give up looking for him. And sure enough, we found him rooting rooting around in our sugar maple forest. <laughs> and uh, we brought him back, and you know tightened up his pen a little bit, but we knew that he needed to explore the world. So we took him out. He got to walk the red carpet, and, and you know, he got to go all over the place. And he, he did. He got to explore the world, and he, he lived a full life. And, and in 2014, sadly, he passed away. And uh, um, so in his honor, that 2014 issue of Boss Hog, um, we, na we renamed the Spirit of Mortimer. And that's when we started putting the pewter lids with Mortimer on the top of the bottle. And so, so in 2014, the... the the uh, Boss Hog release had had Mortimer with wings, in in uh, commemoration of, of his of his passing. And so, this year's bottle will have a different Mortimer on it, and uh, you know, more celebrating his his uh, his victorious side. It's actually going to have a cannon on the on the top with Mortimer standing there with a sword, and he's just pulled the lanyard on the cannon. And, <laughs> oh my God, that sounds amazing! It's awesome, <laughs> but. Uh, um, and the and the stills that has a plaque that says yeah, Mortimer still, right yeah, on it. Yeah, we call the still the still is, is named after Mortimer as well. Wow, and so uh, just to explain where the name comes from, Whistlepig. Uh, that's that's Raj's story, but I'll, I'll oh, ask you to tell it. It's a great story. So, uh, um, yeah, I, Raj is kind of like Winnie the Pooh, you know, and, and and by that I mean sometimes he needs a thoughtful spot, and for Raj, a thoughtful spot is a walk on a wooded lane. So back in 2007, he's doing some work up in Vail, Colorado, and he just needed to get his head wrapped around a few details, and so he gets up, and, and uh, off he goes on a, on, a, on a little walk down a wooded lane. He's head down, deep in thought, minding his own business. He looks up, 
and here's this rattle of a mountain bike, and there's this guy just flying down a hill, heck bent for election. Looks like M.M. Uh, M. at Walsh, you know, gray hair every place, no helmet. And the guy slides to a stop right in front of Raj, almost knocks him over. And, uh, and he gets off the bike all excited. He looks at Raj, wild-eyed, looks at something in the distance behind him, looks at Raj again, back and forth a couple times, and he goes, Could it be? Could it be a wizard pig? And Raj goes, A what? And the guy puts his hand up to his mouth and smacks it a few times and goes, It was a pig. You know, a wizard pig. And Raj looks at him and goes, Who are you and why are you in my face? And the guy looks at him and goes, Gets on the bike, takes off down the hill, and he's gone. And Raj is already in a contemplative mode. And he just stops and he looks to the heavens and he goes, this was the most bizarre human interaction I've ever had. It must be a sign from the heavens. I have to do something with this. So he goes home and he names a farm, Whistle Pig Farm. Flash forward two years later, we're sitting in the living room in here and uh, we're shaking hands on December 8, 2009 that we're going to bring this to life. And, uh, and we didn't have a, a ton of money and you know we had, we had a, lot of, a lot of energy and, and a lot of creativity. So I asked Raj, so... You call this whistle pig farm? Why do you call? There's no, there's no whistle pigs out here. And he goes, uh, um, he tells me the story, and I look at him and I go, it must be a sign from the heavens. We have to do something with this. Let's call the brand whistle pig, and uh, and so we've decided since nobody knows what a whistle pig is anyway, that we're just going to appropriate the definition. So for us, a whistle pig is anybody that enjoys the finer things in life. So you too can be a whistle pig. I, I am a whistle pig for sure. <laughs> According to that definition, I am definitely a whistle pig. <laughs> so it's all good. So that's how that's how we got the name, and you know, and it just goes to the the heart of the issue is the whiskey we take serious, and everything else is fun. You know, this is a fun, this is, it's a fun, it's a fun way of life. It's, it's a, supposed it's to be fun, fun industry. You know, and if you can't have fun here, go be a stockbroker. Yeah, they're not supposed to have fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we were hanging out in a yurt yeah. last night. That was amazing. <laughs> I love that yurt. It is. It is great. So, if anybody um, was say interested in um, distilling their own, you know, starting a brand, like, what advice might you have for them? Start with more money than you think. <laughs> yeah. So I carry. So if you want to lose a lot of money, <laughs> because of my affiliation with uh, with George Washington's distillery, I get to read his archives and things from time mm. to time. And he was he quite documented everything so well. Great fun! I've got two excerpts that that ride around in my in my backpack all the time. One of them was uh, um, a letter he wrote to John Anderson, who was his uh, plantation manager in in the in the, in the late 1797. So 1797, they um, built a t- test distillery. It was a one still in the back in the back corner of a cooperage, mm. just to see if it would work, and 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 it went very well. And apparently George Washington had, had authorized the building of a full-scale distillery. And uh, so this letter that I've got was, was kind of like the, the season, the year in review counseling for his plantation manager. And in it, he basically says, you know, you really have great ideas and you really you do an awesome job at managing the plantation. But once in a while, um, you present a really good idea, and I authorize it, and you don't move forward on it, and it's kind of frustrating. And basically what he's saying is, I told you to go build the distillery. Why isn't it built? And uh, so, you know, he counseled the guy and chewed him out for not having built the distillery. 
Well, you don't see Anderson's response, but about two or three days later, there's another letter. This letter is a letter to his accountant. And in, and in the letter to his accountant, he says, um, please take all due care to make all of, bring all of my accounts to current balance because it appears that I need more money for the distillery than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, John Anderson told him, the reason I haven't started is because there's not enough money to do it. And so George Washington is running around getting all his accounts current so that he can build the distillery. So that's what I tell everybody is, is it's going to take longer than you thought, and it's going to cost more money than you thought. So make sure you keep all your accounts current, because even George Washington had problems with it. <laughs> wow. Amazing. <laughs> well, I can't wait to start making whiskey with you. I mean, I'd be honored. And uh, this, is, this is an amazing experience. Thank, thank you so much for having us. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. You know, what's not to like here? Good grief, you know. Gosh. You know, you, you, it's a beautiful, sunshiny day. You know, you look out, and there's... On one side you've got the, the Adirondacks, and on the other side you've got the Green Mountains, and and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna Lake ask Champlain Alex here to take a picture of us. Five miles away, it's a, it's a, it's all good. It's a great. It's a, it's, you know, again, you know, this the field up here is high enough up the the rye field that you can see both mountain ranges when the leaves are off the trees. Mm. My favorite thing to do is to take one of these Adirondacks and drag it up there, and set it up on top of the hill, and. Wow. Uh, that mountain over there. And bring a, a, a bottle of rye whiskey yeah. and a good cigar. <laughs> and, uh, and there's nothing at all wrong with the world. Nothing wrong. Thank you so much for talking to me, sir. Absolutely. Thank I appreciate you. Appreciate it so much. It a lot. Thank you. You begin to tune it by ear. That's what Kevin's doing. He's, he's listening to it to see how heavily loaded it is. You hear the motor sounds a little different now. There's already grain that's in the conveyor that's got to work its way out. But, but at the end of the day, if it tastes good, it's, it's worth it.